Hello, I'm Michael Hainsworth. The rise of COVID-19 is leading to questions about how prepared Canada's healthcare system was for this novel coronavirus in the wake of the SARS epidemic of 2003. What lessons did we learn then that we applied now? And what lessons are we learning now that will help us when the next one hits? Janet Ecker knows the crisis. She was Ontario's finance minister when SARS hit and was the CEO of the Toronto Financial Services Alliance when the global financial crisis struck five years later. Today, she's a fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and a new one at that. Congrats on your appointment, by the way. Oh, thank you very much. Uh, it's been uh, quite a privilege to be associated with C.D. Howe. I used to uh, attend their sessions and read their materials when I was uh, both finance minister and education minister in, in a previous government. So it's been quite a privilege to be associated with the team there now that I'm, I'm out of the political game. Well, you didn't waste any time swinging for the hornet's nest with your first intelligence memo. You ask, Will this crisis finally shock Canadians and our political leaders out of their fantasy that we have a great health care system? Uh, there's some tough questions we've got to ask ourselves, I think. And, and that, listen, I'm, I'm not trying to second guess uh, all of our leaders who are, uh, you know, stuck in the middle of this. Uh, you know, there's no rule book, no playbook. Um, and they're literally making lifeboat decisions, if I could put it that way, um, based on the best available advice they can get. But that being said, I think we've clearly got to be ready for some of the tough questions that come out of this. And one of the first ones has to do with our healthcare system. Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't ready for this. Uh, and what we've shown is just how close to the edge our healthcare system's been running. Um, you know, a system that doesn't have redundancy, um, you know, or some flex capacity is a system that's that's doomed to to crack at some point under stress and there were enough predictions that something like you know this pandemic something like this was you know could uh could happen at some point um and what we've discovered is that we weren't ready and we didn't know we weren't ready and we didn't listen when there were those that said we should have been ready considering so much of the decision making gets made at the provincial level. I'm, I'm wondering if we're tarring an entire nation with a single brush, or are you more focused on what's happening in Ontario? Well, there's no question that uh, the healthcare in, in healthcare in Canada is delivered by the provinces. Uh, they pay a, you know, a big chunk, 40-some uh, percent of budgets, most provincial budgets, sometimes more, are going to pay for healthcare. But the federal government is also part of that, and the equalization payments that they give to provinces uh, do uh, do help to to support the healthcare system, um, and so it can vary from province to province. But what you're seeing is that in studies where they compare countries, um, OECD does a lot of work in this space where they compare countries with within the OECD membership, um, and we're not at the top. And we used to be a lot higher in the rankings for the quality and what we did and as a healthcare system. And I think that nobody wants to lose the wonderful advantage we have in Canada that we don't have to pay for our healthcare with our visa card. We pay for it with our health card. Nobody wants to lose that. And we shouldn't. But that being said, there's a lot of things that the healthcare system could learn from the private sector we have private sector labs, we have private sector delivery, uh, there's private sector innovation, but we're terribly, terribly afraid of even having that discussion uh, and saying, is there something we can learn from other systems 
that leverage the private sector or partner partner with the private sector. But it's it's considered sort of the third rail of politics, if I you know can use that old cliche. People don't want to talk about that. And I think as we look at how we've let down our frontline healthcare workers, we weren't prepared uh, like we should have been uh, for them. You know, I think we need to ask ourselves some tough questions about our healthcare system. What is it that is good? Let's keep that. But how do we make it better? How do we get back up the rankings in terms of of being a really good crackerjack national healthcare system? What though of the idea that the failings of the healthcare system to be prepared for COVID nineteen have less to do with the healthcare system itself and has more to do with those in charge responsible for being prepared in the first place? There's a lot of fault to go around for all of us. I mean, those in you know in government have been in government. Uh, our public health leaders. There's enough fault for all of us to to uh, to share on this. But I think it's it's a combination. It's we weren't ready in the public health department. We didn't heed warnings that might have given us more of a head start. Uh, we weren't prepared. We didn't really have the plans in place, the material in place that, in retrospect, in hindsight, we should have had. And we also had a healthcare system that is stretched very, very, very thinly. Uh, there just isn't um, the flex in the intensive care places in the beds like you know so when we do have crisis of some kind um the system just isn't capable doesn't have the flexibility because we've been so controlling spending and that is important and listen i was a finance minister and i understand that pressure but we have to figure out how we can have a system that does have more flexibility in it so it can respond to crises like this so we're not letting down all of those, you know, nurses, doctors, and other healthcare workers out there now who are are doing their best on a 24/7 basis um, to protect and, and help patients. So, what does a sustainable healthcare system look like to you? Well, it's a really, it's a very good question. Um, I think it's a system that is setting clear system-wide measurements for how we want to be, like what our quality is. Uh, there's a lot of that. The healthcare system has has metrics and measurements. Um, on all kinds of things in hospitals for procedures and whatever. But I think as, as a provincial government, um, I think we need to start setting those metrics and, and go for them. Um, there has been some, there's been some work done on this. It's been very, very good uh, to try and take certain procedures, hip, cardiac, uh, you know, and say, okay, how do we throw resources at this? and bring down wait times, for example, better coordinate there. And there's been great success stories in that space. And I think we need to keep driving that. Um, so we're setting benchmarks and we're measuring our progress against that. Um, and we're also looking at where there's innovation, where other countries are trying new things um, that we might want to consider to try and make the system, the dollars stretch further, but also the dollars get a, a, a much better outcome for us. And we also should not be afraid to leverage private sector where that makes sense, because uh, I think that's an important piece of, of building resources and expanding the ability of the healthcare system. When we talk about those key performance indicators, those KPIs, that, that, that acronym that hits us no matter what industry we're in, you touched on a couple of them, the uh, wait times specifically. What are some of those other KPIs that we need to look at to establish confidence that we have a sustainable healthcare system? Yeah, that's a, it's a really good question. Um, I, 
definitely wait times is one of them. Uh, definitely uh, the efficiency of and, and the outcomes. I mean, for again, just to use one very minor example, uh, cataract surgery uh, is now um, at the point where it, it can be done incredibly efficiently. You can actually, and some institutions are doing better quality with faster time, saving money. So, I mean, basically stretching the dollar further, they're very efficient. They're very, very much uh, a quality product that they're doing. It's like an assembly line in cataracts, um, but it's working, you know, very, very well. So I think for a lot of our critical procedures, uh, I think we need to sort of figure out how can we um, set um, the metrics for how long it takes to be seen. And again, there is some of this that they're trying to do, how long it takes to be seen, how long it takes to get the treatment, uh, what is the treatment outcome? Um, what was the cost of that treatment outcome, and, and is there a way to to improve the outcome and and make uh, and do it much more efficiently so we can stretch the dollars further? So there's been a lot of um, uh, work done in that and and continuing to be done in that area, and I think as as a government and as you know, uh, looking for re-election someday, governments of all political stripes, I think setting out some of these targets would be. I think a very good thing to drive continued reform. Ontario has um, been pushing this. I mean, one of the big things was to eliminate, I mean, the, the wonderful catchy political phrase was hallway medicine, um, which is a good way to put it, um, and a very ambitious goal, but it'd be very, very good if they can uh, come up with the metrics that they wanna measure how successful they've been in doing that. Innovation in other countries, what are you seeing what what appeals to you as an effort to stretch that dollar further, as you say? Going back to the, the cataract um, example, um, if we have institutions who are able to demonstrate and show that they're doing a better quality, um, you know, stretching that dollar further, being more efficient and getting a better quality, why aren't we saying, doing more of, okay, that's you know you're going to do that procedure you're going to specialize in that procedure uh, and if and it's almost like um uh, an, an almost like uh, on sort of a request for proposal idea who can do a thousand cataract surgeries with the best quality and the best price um and that's who will get the business to do that um so looking at those kinds of of um outcome versus expenditure measurements and figure out who's doing it best um, for example, uh, when I used to be chair of a hospital board, um, uh, the CEO at the time, and he'd come into healthcare from outside um, the, the healthcare system, it had not been his original uh, uh, career path, but he brought in uh, what they call lean methodology, L-E-A-N, uh, which is actually um, a technique for, uh, with your workforce, analyzing what you're doing in each procedure and saying, okay, how can we do this better? Collectively deciding, how can we do this better? And it was phenomenal that we took a hospital that had many, many issues, budget problems, deficits, quality issues. And through the introduction of this and the successful impl implementation of it, um, it, it improved. I mean, we ended up uh, uh, actually with money that we could put to, I wouldn't call it a surplus, but money that we could put to delayed capital projects, for example, without taking away from the quality healthcare. So being prepared to actually ask us, ourselves, can we do this better? Can we do this more efficiently? Can we get a better outcome um, by, uh, by doing that? 
I'm sorry, I couldn't hear most of what you said over the sound of Tommy Douglas rolling over in his grave. <laughs> well, remember, though, we have a healthcare system in this country that is a, a, a something we don't want to lose. And that's not what uh, people who are, are advocating for reform, that's not what they're asking for. We don't want to lose it. As I said, I don't want to have to uh, you know, pay for my health care with my visa card. Um, I want to continue to have access to a good quality system through my Ontario, in this case, Ontario, from my Ontario health card. No one is advocating that we we give that up. But in terms of how we deliver that, um, you know, behind the curtain, how we deliver that healthcare system, we need to be open to how best to 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 innovate, how best to deliver it. For example, the use of artificial intelligence. There is now uh, programming, uh, and again, I'm not the tech person here, but they've now got artificial intelligence technology that can predict. The, the load that you're going to get in an emergency ward in your emergency department uh, on a weekend. They take, you know, years worth of data uh, and they can predict with reasonable uh, um, certainty that it's going to, you know, it's going to be a busy weekend or not a busy weekend. And that allows that particular hospital to staff up or not staff up. So they're ready for it, you know, and rather than trying to be, be uh, you know, predict yourself or have, you know, a full team on a weekend when you may not need a full team, that kind of thing. So there's all kinds of innovation out there, people trying new things. Um, and I think we just need to do what we, what we can to allow that innovation to be adapted throughout the system. One form of innovation that turned out to bite us in the butt through this whole process is the just-in-time delivery model for supply chains. Is the weakest link in the chain the idea of the chain itself when it comes to healthcare? Well, that's an interesting question. For something like uh, preparing for pandemics, um, you need, as is you know, as you've seen, like stockpiles. Um, you need to be ready because um, even if you have uh, a good supply chain going, um, it, there's a there's a surge. All of a sudden, instead of needing you know a thousand masks, you need ten thousand masks. And so no supply chain is going to be able to quickly adapt to that kind of fluctuation. So making sure that critical supplies, that you do have things on hand, that you are ready for that. But also, too, is it's almost like, uh, you know, in crisis management, um, you know, for example, after the financial crisis in the global financial crisis in 2008, 2009 uh, and 2010, um, regulators of financial companies sat down and, and, and changed the rules and brought in more requirements for risk management in a financial institution, tougher standards, tougher compliance. You had to have cash buffers. You had to have people on your board with and your senior executive with the expertise that, that um, was needed to you know, run a financial institution. You had to run simulations of various, you know, what would happen if all of a sudden, uh, uh, you know, the mortgage market collapsed? Uh, what would happen if there was a pandemic? What would happen if there was a, um, you know, a terrorist attack? Like run simulations. How does that impact on your financial company's ability to run? Um, and I think we need to start looking at that kind of uh, crisis management um, as, a, as a core uh, competence for not only government, just in terms of, you know, what's the crisis management capability within any government and making sure that 
we've got those, you know, plans on the shelf, as it were, but also within our healthcare system. There will be some hospitals that were better prepared for this than others, that had leadership that had, had paid attention to their risk management capabilities, had paid attention to how do we, you know, who's the best person to put in charge, what kind of equipment do we need, et cetera. Um, and, and those stories will come out and because there will be differences in how well some managed it and some didn't. And I think um, that kind of uh, preparation for a crisis is something that we need to build into the psyche of the whole, uh, the healthcare system. Uh, the long-term care, for example, like some homes, some uh, long-term care retirement, nursing homes, whatever, uh, are not experiencing the dreadful, dreadful uh, toll that is happening in other homes. Um, so I think we need to look at that. Okay, why is that? Is that because some of them were better managed than others, had better risk management, better preparation than others, um, or not? And if there was, that needs to be a mandatory thing for all of them to adopt. So I think there's a lot to be learned uh, that we can carry forward to help have a much better a much better healthcare system to do a better job for our citizens and to better support our frontline folks. It also strikes me that there's plenty of opportunity to cut what I think you've referred to as petty red tape. Yeah, there's a there's a difference between process that you need versus petty or whatever you want to call it, red tape, useless red tape. Um, and and there is uh, uh, there's very much a difference uh, in in that. And one of the things. There's the old joke about never let a crisis go to waste. One of the things that I hope we have out of this at the end is virtual care locked in, that we are going to be able to do virtual care because uh, so many doctors now uh, are treating their patients and dealing with their patients virtually uh, because, of course, we're all in social isolation. But that doesn't have to be um, just a wartime thing. We can be doing that and should be doing that uh, as a normal course. And so that, as you say, you don't need to physically come in to see the doctor. And when you've got, um, especially, you know, some shortages in some kind of specialties, uh, let's say you're in the Northwest Territories, where, um, you know, you may not have the cardiac specialist that you need, but through technology, you can access a cardiac specialty specialist in downtown Toronto at one of our research hospitals who could still be caring for and treating that patient. Um, that patient could be getting quality care through virtual technology. And we've had barriers like national licensure so that uh, a doctor licensed in one province couldn't practice in the other province unless he or she was licensed. So virtual care was very difficult to do outside of provincial boundaries. That's red tape that is not helping. And so what you're seeing is that governments have very quickly put in place processes to support virtual care. I hope that, and hopefully we'll get the licensing uh, uh, stuff, as it were, fixed after this so that we can have that. It's a great innovation. It can work. It can have be efficient and provide quality care for our patients out there and work a heck of a lot better for uh, for our frontline folks too as well. You said never let a crisis go to waste. You're predicting a new populism that comes out of this crisis. What does that look like? <laughs> well, I think uh, one of the things that I think our political leaders have, have got to be ready for is uh, a change in how people look at government, is a change around people look at society. Uh, for example, um, right now, 
who are people turning to for help? It's the grocery clerk, it's the truck driver, it's the, the people that are usually seen as, as, quote, lower on the wage scale, if I can put it that way. And now that the crisis has hit, who are the most important people? And there's all kinds of people who do good work uh, in offices and other roles, but, and get highly, highly paid for it. Um, but right now, who is more important? And I think, uh, and you're seeing this now with the personal care workers in, in uh, um, retirement homes and nursing homes who were not paid as well as folks in, let's say, hospitals. Um, and right now, the people are, you know, they're increasing that pay. They're, they're putting a different value on those individuals. And there will be consequences for all of this, absolutely. But um, that is one thing. All of a sudden, the, the um, those folks who are social influencers, um, you know, you're seeing some of the stories of people who uh, are playing on, uh, you know, with their blogs or whatever it is, and they endorse a product, they get gazillions of dollars for doing it. And, and you know, it's like, excuse me, why are we paying you all this money when I want to be paying somebody who really matters to me, like the grocery clerk or the person who's looking after my mother or my father in the retirement home? So I think there's, there's going to be a, a reevaluation of that that is, I think, really, really... Uh... Really, Janet? You don't think that, you know, once the dust settles, that we're just going to go back to our Kim Kardashians and glorifying our corner office CEOs and our hedge fund managers? You really think long-term we're going to pay that guy who trucked food from point A to point B more? Well, let's put it this way. With that that guy, if he's just going to say, sorry, I'm not going to do it anymore unless you do. Oh, well, he's, he's only doing the job because he has no choice. You know, these are people who are working because they have to. You know, it's a good question. It's a good question. I think we're also going to see, uh, and I mean, nobody can make the prediction about what's going to happen here, but I think certainly that's one kind of basket of issues. The other one is, is uh, uh, issues around borders. All of a sudden, borders became extremely important and um, you know, when people are saying, whoa, you know, we're not going to let people that we think are infected uh, or could be passing this on across our borders. Uh, and that's been something that all of a sudden that sense of safety was driving people to start shutting borders, um, which is not something I mean, the free movement of goods and, and, and talent has been one of the reasons, certainly for Canada, that we've had economic success. And that's the other problem is that we people are going to be looking at, okay, I'm going to make my product here for me and I'm not going to give it to anybody else. Um, that sort of shutting down and trying to, to uh, you know, put a wall around your country uh, and make all of your products uh, and everything you need here at home, um, there's a limit to how far you can go on that. And if we do what they did after the Great Depression, um, that was one of the problems was that all the countries, everybody just went behind their moat and put up the walls and it made everything worse. One of the reasons Canada's had good economic success is because we've been a free trader and we've been able to trade freely. So we've got to assess that risk. Again, it's an upside downside risk. There's no perfect black and white answer. Clearly, we need to have capacity for some critical functions, but at the same time, Canada will never be able to be self-sustaining in, in so many areas that are really important for our society. So looking at how we're going to balance that out uh, is, I think, uh, a very significant thing as well. Janet Ecker is a fellow at the C.D. Howe Institute and former Ontario finance minister. Still to come at the C.D. Howe, the future of money. 
Is Canada ready for a national digital currency? Join our webinar Wednesday, April 22nd at 12 p.m. Eastern with the Bank of Canada's Scott Hendry, Queen's University Professor of Economics, Torsten Koppel, and CoinSquare President and Founder, Virgil Rostand. April 23rd, a members-only briefing call will be held at 3 p.m. Eastern on emergency funding programs and asset-based finance in times of economic crisis with author David Powell. Got a question about COVID? April 24th, it's an Ask Me Anything webinar with Dr. Christopher Motti, the head of microbiology, immunology, and infectious disease microbiology at the University of Calgary. I'm Michael Hainsworth. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the C.D. Howe Institute podcast with Michael Hainsworth. Subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. The C.D. Howe Institute is an independent, not-for-profit research institute whose mission is to raise living standards by fostering economically sound public policies. The Institute is widely considered to be Canada's most influential think tank and a trusted source of essential policy intelligence, distinguished by nonpartisan, evidence-based research and subject to definitive expert review. Visit cdhow.org and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you.